You can turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. If you have one of the Pew Bibles with you this morning, that's on page 794. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to go grab one from the back. We have Bibles available for you. It'll be helpful as we walk through uh, these two chapters from the book of Zechariah together. As you've turned there, I ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Again, Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, 
Do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning dependent upon you and desperate to hear from you and your word. We pray that by your spirit, you would do work in us by your word, that you would shape our minds to think as we ought to think, that you would shape our hearts, that we would love that which we should love, and that you would shape our lives, our hands, and our actions, that we may glorify you in our entire life. And above all, Father, we pray that you would show us Jesus Christ and his work for us. We pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are, by our very nature, dependent creatures. We are dependent creatures. But it is amazing how often we forget that reality. Self-sufficiency runs deep in our fallen human nature. But even still, we can admit that there are times when our dependency becomes completely unavoidable even for the most stubborn of us, and I'm a fairly stubborn person myself. In our everyday lives, we can think of times when we move beyond our abilities and we must rely upon, depend upon the abilities of another person. I am fairly capable when it comes to changing the oil in our car or even changing the pads on our brakes. But if something serious happens to our car, I am beyond my ability. And I take our car to the mechanic, the expert, the one who knows how to solve the problem that I can't deal with myself. If your child breaks their collarbone, unless you are a doctor, you probably have moved beyond your abilities. No matter how good you are at first aid, you have to take them to the doctor, to someone that knows how to fix the problem that you cannot fix yourself. But it goes even deeper than that. We owe our very existence to someone outside of ourselves. We are foundationally uh, dependent and not self-sustaining creatures. We owe every single breath and every single heartbeat that we have to our God. And as we live in this fallen world and as we live with fallen selves, we know that we are not as we ought to be. We know that this world is not as it ought to be. We are in a predicament that we cannot solve for ourselves. Despite our best efforts, Despite what some self-help books might tell you, we are not able to deal with our own guilt, with our sin, with its presence in our life and its power in our hearts, nor do we have the ability to restore the world to the way that it ought to be. For redemption and for restoration, we are dependent. And it's this dependency upon another that comes to the forefront in our passage Today, the big idea here in Zechariah chapter three and four is that we must depend upon our priest and king for true restoration. We must depend upon our priest and our king for true restoration. During Zechariah's day, the Jews were in desperate need of restoration. 
as we've seen over the last three weeks in Haggai and then in Zechariah last week, a number of Jews had returned to Jerusalem and the surrounding cities from their captivity in Babylon. But now we find ourselves almost 20 years after their initial return, and they're still not in a very good situation. They've done some initial work on their own houses. They have fixed some things, but the walls of the city of Jerusalem, and most significantly, the temple of God at the heart of the city of Jerusalem, remain unfinished. When Zechariah is seeing these visions that we see in Zechariah 1 through 6, it is a couple of months after the end of the book of Haggai. So they have begun their work, but their work is yet to be completed. At the beginning of the book of Zechariah, there's a call to this restoration to the Lord. God calls people, his people, to return to him, and he, and he promises them to return to them. They're called to repentance, to reprioritize, and to continue to work on the temple of God. And then again, starting in chapter 1, about halfway through the chapter, and then going into chapter 6, the Lord gives Zechariah a series of eight different visions in the night. He gives them eight night visions that work and function as this powerful visual representation to Zechariah of what they were longing for, a visual representation of the promises of God, what he promised to do in their future, even though what Zechariah saw with his eyes as he looked around the city of Jerusalem was a city still in ruins, a city not as it ought to be. God gave him a vision of a more glorious city and a more glorious future temple. And don't we need this sort of vision too when we look around our world and we look at our lives and we often see rubble and destruction, but we need the vision of God to see what he promises to do. But these aren't eight disconnected visions. They're not just merely eight independent visions. There's a structure to the visions. Sinclair Ferguson calls these a tapestry of visions, as if they are weaved together to show a unified, coherent picture for Zechariah. And as is, as is often the case in Hebrew writing, in this tapestry, the most significant piece lies in the center of the tapestry. Often in our culture, when we communicate things, we put the most significant thing at the end of the presentation. Or at the end of the sermon, we hit the climax right at the very end of the sermon before the prayer. But here in Zechariah and often in Hebrew writing, the most significant part lies right in the center. And that is what we're looking at today in Zechariah 3 and 4. Willem van Gemmeren, another biblical scholar, compares it to stained glass windows in a long sanctuary in a church. That you start in the back of the sanctuary and you have these parallel visions as you look at these stained glass windows. Visions 1 and 8 parallel each other. And then you move farther down the sanctuary. Visions 2 and 7 parallel each other across the sanctuary. You move forward, you see 3 and 6 paralleling each other. But then you reach the front and the center of the sanctuary with two big stained glass windows, the center of the picture, what your attention is meant to be drawn towards and focused towards, right at the front and center, these two visions, the fourth and fifth visions in chapters three and four. And what do these two visions center upon and focus our eyes on? A priest 
and a king. A priest and a king. The high priest Joshua takes center stage in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we see Zerubbabel, who is not the king, right? He's only the governor of Judah. But he is also the rightful heir to the throne of the king and the kingship. He is a descendant of David. And he bore much of the kingly hopes of the people of God in his time. So again, we are focused upon the work of God through a priest and through a king. We must depend upon our priest and king for true restoration. So let's look at chapter three and how we must depend upon our priest. Here, restoration takes the form of cleansing for the people of God. In verse one, Zechariah sees a vision. And he sees in this vision Joshua, the high priest who's standing before the angel of the Lord. This is exactly what a priest is meant to do. Priests are meant to minister in the presence of God, to be a representative of the people of God as they went before God. And as the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, it was as if he was entering the heavenly throne room and standing before God himself. And that's the vision that Zechariah sees here. Joshua, the high priest, standing where he ought to stand in the presence of God, in the heavenly throne room before the angel of the Lord. But even as he stands where he ought to stand, stand, there is something terribly wrong in this picture. Joshua has a problem. The problem is that Joshua, first, is not alone in this throne room. There's another, isn't there? Satan, literally in the Hebrew, it's the Satan, meaning the accuser. He is standing there and he is doing or intending to do what his name implies, to accuse Joshua before God. And with Joshua as a representative, to accuse the whole people of God in his presence. And verse three makes it clear for us what this accusation is. What is Satan's accusation? Joshua is in the presence of God wearing filthy garments. He's not clothed as he ought to be. Now, have you ever showed up to an event in the wrong clothes? You can imagine imagine the embarrassment of showing up to a wedding or a fancy work event, and you did not get the memo that this was a black tie event. You show up to the wedding, the the men are in tuxes, the women are in ball gowns, and you are wearing khaki shorts and a a button-down shirt, but you stand out like a sore thumb in this crowd of people. But Joshua's problem is far beyond this. It is not just that he is underdressed. He is showing up in the most glorious place, the throne room of God, looking like he just got off a shift working in the sewer system of New York City. And that's not really even that much of an exaggeration. The word filthy here means more than just dirty. It had other connotations to it. It is as if he was rolling around working in his clothes in the sewer of New York, and he shows up in the presence of God himself. And Satan is there to bring his accusation. Now, in the mind of a Jew in Zechariah's day, they might perceive that their biggest threat to the city of Jerusalem 
is the surrounding nations, the nations that could just as easily swoop in and drag them into captivity as they had done years before when Babylon had come in and destroyed Jerusalem. And they might have thought that their biggest problem was the walls in ruins and the temple in ruins. But this vision reminds them that they, as the people of God, have a far bigger enemy and a far bigger problem than they might have imagined. Their biggest enemy was not Persia or the surrounding nations, but Satan himself, the accuser. And their biggest problem was not the rubble of the temple, but their sin, which had brought about the destruction of Jerusalem in the first place. And in that predicament, Joshua and the whole people of God were completely powerless to do anything to remedy the issue. Imagine Joshua in this scenario. What could he possibly do to fix the problem? He can't just run off and take a shower real quick and throw on some new clothes and, and jump back into the temple. No, he is already in the presence of God in these filthy robes. And what power does he have against the accusations of Satan? In this scenario, although Satan is the father of lies, Satan's accusations were completely true. Joshua was standing there as exhibit A of his own guilt and the guilt of God's people before God. They were completely dependent, Joshua and the people were completely dependent upon someone outside of themselves to remedy an issue that they were powerless to. And so we see God step in in this scenario to save Joshua in two ways. First, through a declaration and then through an action. A declaration and an action. First, we see God's declaration. If we're looking at verse 2, it seems that before Satan even has a chance to utter his first words of accusation, the Lord jumps in and gets the first word. And he says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? In the Lord's righteous anger against Satan, don't we also see here the love of God for his people? God is essentially saying, these are my chosen people. Have I not chosen Jerusalem? These are my elect. These are the ones that I have loved before the foundation of the world. How dare you, Satan? How dare you bring an accusation against the people that I love, against the people that I chose? Satan, rebuke you. So the Lord silences the accuser. But then we see the Lord's action in verses four through seven. He silences the enemy and then he deals with the problem, the filthy garments, their sin. And God has three actions here, three steps, which are so vital for us to see. The Lord first removes then clothes, and then commissions. He removes clothes and commissions. And again, to highlight Joshua's dependency, when it comes to his clothes, these are things that are done to Joshua, not by Joshua. So this first action done to Joshua is the removal of his filthy garments. In verse 4, the angel of the Lord commands that Joshua's filthy garments be removed, and then he immediately interprets that action for us. I love it when the symbolism is interpreted so that we can understand it. He says, behold, I have taken 
I have removed your iniquity away from you. The removal of the garments was the removal of sin. God must take away. He must remove, must pardon, must forgive our sin in order to redeem us. But then God doesn't stop there. In his second action, he reclothes Joshua. His filthy garments are replaced by pure vestments, by a, a clean turban placed on his head. To stand before God, he not only needs to have his sin removed, but to have another thing added to him. Too often, I think, when we think of the gospel, it's in terms of only forgiveness and the pardoning of guilt. But the removal of our sin is only part of the gospel story. We also need to be clothed in righteousness. One way to say this is that we have a sin problem and we have a righteousness problem. We have something which we ought not to have, and we don't have something that we should have. We have sin, but we also don't have righteousness. We not only are standing wearing stained clothes, we are not wearing pure clothes. And so our salvation must include a solution both to our, both through the removal of our sin and through the addition of righteousness. And then the Lord lastly acts through a commission. In verses six through seven, the Lord calls Joshua and through him the whole people to renewed obedience and covenant faithfulness. Even as the Lord calls us to renewed obedience, to walk before him as he redeems us and saves us. Then in verses eight through 10, this chapter ends with a note of anticipation. We realize that what has been going on for Joshua in this vision is far bigger than just a vision about Joshua. Is it about something, it's about something far greater, far bigger that the Lord intends to one day accomplish. In verse eight, the Lord tells Joshua that he and his friends, which are the other priests that would serve in the temple, he says that they were a sign. What do signs do? Signs point to something else. The sign doesn't do you any good if it's not accompanied by the thing it points to, right? They are a sign, but they're pointing beyond themselves to something else. And what is that other thing? They are a sign that the Lord would one day raise up his servant, the branch, capital B, branch. This imagery of a branch is used throughout the prophets, especially in the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, <clears throat> excuse me, and Ezekiel. And it's used as a reference to the promised Messiah from the line of King David. For instance, Jeremiah 33, 15, the Lord promises, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. It's a picture of the tree of the dynasty of David that seemed to be cut off in the exile. It seemed to be toppled over, but the Lord promised that a new branch would spring up out of that stump, that the kingdom would not die and a new king would come and would reign forever on the throne of David. But notice, interestingly, that the priests are the sign of this branch. We get a picture that the Messiah would come not only as a conquering king, but also as a great high priest. Verse 9 then gives us a picture of a stone 
It's likely a gemstone here with seven eyes or seven facets on it, like the gemstones that the high priest would wear on his breastplate and on his turban. And this stone was given as a promise that God would one day, through this priest, this promised priest would remove the iniquity of the land in a single day and would bring peace so that everyone will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Joshua points beyond himself to another high priest, one who would come after him, who would accomplish in a single day what every priest before him had failed to accomplish through daily sacrifices, through the yearly day of atonement, through all of their work, this one priest in one single day would accomplish what they had always pointed to. Around 500 years after this book was written, there was another high priest who was born of a woman named Mary. And God commanded that this priest would be given the name Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus. As we see in the book of Hebrews, Jesus accomplished what no high priest before him could ever do. In one day and in one act, Jesus is our high priest, silenced Satan, our accuser, and brought us peace with God. And it's precisely that Jesus was not only like Joshua, but that he was different, as we saw in our New Testament reading. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. Notice that word? Joshua, he is standing in the presence of God, and he is filthy in his rags. But Jesus, as a priest, would come, and he'd be holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus was a spotless, stainless high priest. But what did he do when he offered up himself? He took our filthy, dirty robes. He put them on his own body and he took them to the cross, nailing our sin to the cross, removing and pardoning our guilt in the presence of God. But then more than that, he takes his own royal, spotless, stainless garments, and he puts them over us poor lost sinners so that we stand pure in the presence of our God. Jesus is certainly a greater high priest. And brothers and sisters, if you have depended upon Jesus Christ, if you have faith in him, then he is your high priest. And when Satan stands to accuse you, when he lays out in front of you everything that you have done, everything that you are shameful of, everything that you feel guilty of, your answer to Satan is not that he is wrong, but your answer is that Christ is sufficient. Martin Luther knew this truth very well. If you look at the front of your worship guide, there's a quote from Martin Luther. So when the devil throws your sins in your face 
and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Brothers and sisters, depend upon your priest. Then moving into chapter four, Zechariah is given a fifth vision in this tapestry of visions. This time it's a vision of a golden lampstand. And on the top of this stand is a bowl, which is full of oil, which would then supply these seven lamps that were on the stand. And alongside this lampstand grow two olive trees. Now to Zechariah and to any ancient Jew, the imagery of the lampstand itself would be pretty clear. It's one of the Hebrew words that probably many of us know. The word here for lampstand is menorah. We understand. It's a picture of the lampstand that served in the tabernacle and then the lampstands in the temple. For Zechariah to just have a vision of a priest and then now to have a vision of this lampstand, it would be a picture of a greater new temple where the presence of God would dwell in the whole earth as the significance of the number seven kind of comes out in verse 10. The seven lamps function as like the seven eyes of God, which are throughout the whole earth, the presence of God in the whole world. And part of what makes this lampstand better and different is that it never runs out of oil. Unlike the lampstands that had been destroyed in the temple and had been carried off into exile, and unlike those lampstands which constantly needed to be refilled by the priests in their service, this lampstand had a bowl that would never run dry. The olive trees next to it, it is as if their, their oil was funneled down into this bowl, providing this unextinguishable flame for this temple. And this vision would have been a great encouragement to Zechariah and to the whole people as they were in the process of rebuilding the temple. God is saying, I will provide a greater temple that will never be destroyed. Its light will never go out and I will be present in the whole world. But even though Zechariah probably understood the lampstand part of it, he was confused about the identity of the two olive trees. So in verse four, he asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? And the angel replied, do you not know what these are? And Zechariah responded, no, my Lord. I think this should be a great encouragement to us when we are studying through visions like this and we don't get it. We read it and say, I have no clue what the Lord is showing in this vision. If the prophet Zechariah himself had no clue, then we are in good company. And the angel doesn't actually even give him a direct answer until the very end of the chapter in verse 14. And I'll circle back around to that when we get to the end. Instead of telling Zechariah what the two olive trees represented, the Lord instead gave him a message for Zerubbabel, for the governor of Judah, for the one who was a descendant of King David, the one who is the rightful heir to the throne. And God's message to this heir was a message about the rebuilding of the temple. 
Now, there is a close connection between the Davidic kingship and the temple in Jerusalem. David, King David himself, was the one who first envisioned the building of this temple in Jerusalem. And it was his son, Solomon, who began the work and saw its completion. And so now we have another person in the line of these kings who is now being recommissioned to do the work that these first kings had done in Israel, to rebuild the temple. Temple building in Israel was a kingly work. It was a duty of the king himself. And the Lord promises that through Zerubbabel, the temple will be built, that every mountain in his way is going to become as a plain. The Lord is going to remove every obstacle. They're going to see Zerubbabel not only laying the cornerstone of this new temple, but laying the top stone on it, the final stone, the completion stone of this temple. He would oversee its rebuilding from beginning to end, and all of God's people would rejoice to see the builder Zerubbabel holding the plumb line, the constructing king. But the most significant part of this message to Zerubbabel is right at the beginning in verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The building of God's house would not be accomplished by worldly might or power or ingenuity. It would ultimately be accomplished by the spirit of God working through the kingly servant of God. And just as Joshua pointed us forward beyond himself in chapter three to a coming high priest, so Zerubbabel here functions as a pointer, as a sign to one who is to come after him. Another king born in the line of David who would oversee the building of the new temple of God, the people of God, his church, Jesus, the Son of God, was and is the Spirit-anointed Messiah, who in Matthew chapter 16 promised that he will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it's the same Jesus who sends his Spirit now among us as his people to accomplish the work of his kingdom on earth. This is a great reminder that we must always work as Christians from a conviction that it is Jesus Christ who builds, beautifies, and secures his kingdom, his church, and his people. We labor not with confidence in ourselves, in all of our strategies, not with confidence in our finances or our influence, but with confidence that Jesus will not fail to complete the work that he began. And it's in this conviction that we learn to not despise the day of small things. Verse 10 tells us that there were some who despised the day of small things. People who looked at the slow progress of the temple and how insignificant their labor seemed and how small the temple that they were building seemed compared to the temple that they had built before. And they were dissatisfied by what they did and by what they saw. Do you despise the day of small things, seemingly insignificant things? Sometimes we can feel that the only service that matters in the kingdom of God is the grand things. 
and the radically bold things. But if it is Jesus by his spirit who accomplishes his work in his way, in his time, by his power, then let us learn to not despise simple faithfulness in the seemingly ordinary and insignificant and small things of this life. Do not despise persistence in prayer and evangelism with that family member, even when it seems unfruitful. It seems like you're getting nowhere. Lord, I'm doing this small thing and I don't see your work in it. Do not despise the work of the Lord in that. Do not despise the long and hard road of raising children to know the Lord. Even on those days when it is so frustrating and it seems like you're getting nowhere, do not despise the day of small things. Do not despise simple service, hospitality, and generosity in the church and in our world. Do not be discouraged when it seems like you live in a day of small things and you cannot perceive in our church, in our city, in our world, what the Lord seems to be doing in this time. We can labor on with confidence in the day of small things because Jesus is the one who builds his church. It is Jesus by his spirit who accomplishes his work through us. And it's here that we do come to the end of chapter four. The angel finally answers Zechariah's question about the identity of these two olive trees that are next to the lampstand. Zechariah actually has to ask two more times, verses 11 and 12. And then finally in verse 14, he's given an answer. These olive trees, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. These olive trees are the two anointed servants of the Lord through whom God's spirit would build and sustain God's people and God's temple. These two olive trees are a picture of the greater Joshua and the greater Zerubbabel. The purposes of God to purify and build up his people are accomplished through his anointed offices of a priest and a king. And some ancient Jews actually looked at verses like this and anticipated that there would be two messiahs. They anticipated that there would be a priestly messiah and a kingly messiah. But what we see instead is a king and a priest. In chapter 3, verse 8, again, we saw the priests functioning as a sign of the line of David and the coming of the branch. Priests serving as, sign, as signs of a king. And even more shockingly, in chapter 6, next week, we'll see a priest sitting on a throne. We're given this hint that there's going to be one who's going to accomplish both of these offices in one person. And as we've seen, that one person is our great high priest and our one true king, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our priest who purifies us by his own blood and righteousness. And Jesus is our king who builds up and protects his people and makes us into the temple of God. We must depend upon this priest and this king to accomplish for us and through us what we can never accomplish by ourselves. And this dependence is what we call faith. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for our great high priest, Jesus Christ.
for him as our great king. We praise you that you purify your people, that though we don't deserve it and we stand before you with filthy rags, that you remove those rags, that you clothe us in righteousness, and that you build us up then together into a temple, that you would then dwell among us, that we would be able to stand in your presence with joy, with confidence and adoration. Father, take us and take away in our hearts self-reliance and self-sufficiency and instead teach us dependence upon Jesus Christ. Pray in his name. Amen.